Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've noticed we've been doing a sermon series called Church and Culture. And we've been looking at the contrast between the church and between the culture because, well, quite frankly, there is a contrast and there should be a contrast between the church and the culture. The problem is that the church in the American culture has kind of shifted to become like the culture in the sense that our styles, our ways of doing things, um, have become much like what the culture does. And the sad thing is, in our day and age, in 21st century United States of America, we have begun to, begun to mimic the, uh, the, the patterns of culture in the way we believe certain things about the culture and within our culture, to the point to where we've wanted to shift or change our beliefs and our doctrines to more uh, cohere to a cultural beliefs and mindset rather than uh, a biblical belief and mindset. The problem is when you read through scripture, if you're a student of scripture or even if you're a student of world history, cultures begin to devolve when they begin to um, allow certain things that destroy the culture from within. Uh, cultures become very weak, countries, nations become weak from within before they're taken over from without, okay? It has been said by many of our leaders in the United States in our some 250 years of existence that America's downfall will not come as an attack from the outside, but rather as a result of the devolution or the destruction or the degradation of its own integrity from within. And that's what you're seeing. We've heard it said over and over, and I'm only 45, but even in my 45 years of existence, I have heard it said, I've seen the changes in the culture of my four decades of existence, four and a half decades of existence. I've seen changes, as many of you have. And the question is, are they good changes or are they bad changes? And, the, and, and here's the further question is, where do you measure good versus bad? Amen. Right versus wrong. Evil versus good. I'm not saying our culture is evil, but our culture can be affected by evil. Does that make sense? All right. So just so we're on the same page. And uh, we've gone through this, uh, this, this message series, those of you that are tracking with us at home as well, watching online this morning, we've been going through this series and looking at the contrast between the culture and the church, or at least where the church and culture should be contrasted, but all too often it's very similar. And we've looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 to kind of get a pattern or a picture of what the church looks like when it's at its best and asking ourselves, do we look like the church looks when it's at its best? We looked at the apostles' teaching versus the world's teaching in our first sermon. 
The second one we, we entitled Signs, Wonders, and Weirdos, and Matt McCarrier did an amazing job at looking at the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is alive and well today, still doing miracles, signs, and wonders. Last week, we looked at uh, the picture of the church and whether or not it is a structure of socialism, communism, capitalism, or something else. And if you didn't get a chance to see any of those, they are on our website. Check it out. Today, we're looking at social media, Wikipedia, and Ecclesia. Social media, Wikipedia, and Ecclesia. And I want to really hone in on this question. What is the church? Not how, we, how is the church governed, what patterns should the church have within its existence to determine how it should uh, govern itself, but rather, what is the church and what should it look like? Well, we know the church exists in the New Testament as a community of faith. It's also called the body of Christ. It's also called uh, the fellowship of believers, but what do all of those term, terms describe when we talk about the church? It's this idea of community. Can you have community outside of the church? Yes. But what does community within the church look like? How would we describe it? How would we define community within the church? See, community is derived from an attempt to formulate a sense of belonging within groups of like-minded people who are striving toward the same purposes. In essence, there is a desire and a deep longing within most individuals for a sense of oneness that can only be found in fellowship with others. We were not created to be alone. As a matter of fact, if you look in the very beginning, as I mentioned earlier, in Genesis 1 and 2, God said after he created the first man, in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for man to be alone. But a lot of times we want to be alone. We pull ourselves away. I think I mentioned this earlier in the week in a Bible study I was doing online that the, the thing that happens more often than not when something happens in a person's life that goes to a place of worship and is a part of a church, when something happens that is not good in that person's life, and I've seen it over and over and over in the churches that I've been on staff at, the first thing they do is they leave the church. When something bad happens in their lives, whether it's a divorce, whether it's their own moral failure, whether they slip back into addiction, or any number of things, the first thing they do, instead of running toward the community of faith, which should be a safe place, they run away from it. And I think the reason is because the church isn't to them a safe place often, because the church has become a lot like the culture. And when the church becomes a lot like the culture, there are fingers of condemnation pointed right back at the other person who's fallen into disgrace. One of my things has been as a pastor, the church should be the safest place in the world. Now, it's not a place where you can do whatever you want and get away with everything under the sun. It's a place where there's healthy accountability, where you should be able to be called out for things that are not right in your life. And it's a place where you, who may be the one that's doing wrong, should be willing to open yourself up to that and say, yeah, you're right. And for that other person to say, can I walk with you through this? 
But all too often what's happened in the church and what the community hears is the same thing they hear in the rest of society. And that's condemnation and curses. But is that the way it should be? Everybody's searching for a place to belong. Why do you think the gang rates are so high in the United States? Right. I mean, there's these, there's these gangs in inner cities. It's not just in inner cities. Guess what? There are gangs all over in some of the more rural, rural parts of our communities. Why do you think that is? Because they come from broken homes where there's not a network of safety for them to go back to. And so they find anyone who's willing to bring them in and show them a place of safety, love, comfort, and support. It doesn't matter who it is. As long as you're showing me I have a place here, that, that uh, there's safety here. So gang rates are through the roof in some of our inner cities and even in our places outside of the inner cities. But the church should be that. But the problem is in our culture, the church has taken such a back seat to the rest of the culture and we've allowed ourselves to be cocooned off from the rest of society that it's me and my holy people and no one else. The people that look like me, smell like me, I won't say taste like me, because you shouldn't be tasting people. That's not healthy. It's called cannibalism. But you know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. It's really heavy in here for a moment. I just want to lighten the load a bit, all right? Are you, are you still with me? Okay, just making sure. All right, so it's the people that look like me and act like me that I gravitate toward. And there's something natural about that. But as the body of Christ, when you look in the early church, it was rich and poor together in the same place. That was unheard of because the caste system existed. In most places in the world today, the caste system still exists. You know what that is? It's either you have extreme poor or extreme wealth. There is no middle class. The United States is one of the very few places in the world that actually has a legitimate middle class but in the early church where you had the caste system you had rich and poor together in the same place of worship in the community of faith you had people of multiple ethnicities you had women who weren't allowed in the place of worship with the men in there elbow to elbow with the men worshiping in the community of faith with Jesus Christ as the head of the church you see Jesus broke down Every barrier. And they were all one in Jesus Christ. And this is what we read in Paul's letters in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul in his letters to the churches. And you read time after time after time where he's talking about the church, instructing the church, correcting the church, which is most of what his letters are about. It's correcting things that were wrong in the early church. He says, listen. There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 is the one place that comes to mind when I'm thinking about that right now. But he says it in other epistles as well. So what is the church? Well, the church is a community of faith who centers around this idea of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And as I mentioned last week, the church is not governed by anything other than Christ himself. If Christ is our leader, our ruler, our king of kings, our lord of lords, then he is the one that makes the decisions for what we should and should not do. 
And the question is, then what is our governing document? What is our constitution? We call it the Bible. This is why in Acts 2.42, it says that the early church, when they gathered together, one of their common practices was to study the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? It's what we now have as canonized scripture in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is the eyewitness testimony in written form for us today that was oral tradition for them in the early church about what the disciples actually saw, what they experienced. And this, Jesus as Lord, experienced for them. And see, it was the resurrection that sealed the deal for them. Because the Gospels of the word of mouth oral tradition of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have just been that. Another great story about a guy who died. But if the resurrection hadn't happened, that would not have put the stamp and the seal on those documents as our governing statement for today as the church. Does this make sense to you? Okay, just making sure we're together. So what is our unified purpose as a church? Is that Jesus Christ was God's son, God in the flesh, if you will, Father, Son, and Spirit, all three in one. He was God in the flesh. He died on the cross as the perfect sinless person to take away the sins of the world. Now, he doesn't superimpose forgiveness on you. You have to come to him and surrender in order to get that. The Pope this past week said that everybody is a child of God. And I'm probably stepping on toes here. I'm not trying to get political, but I read this article. It just blew me out of the water. You can read it. There's a lot of other stuff in there. But he said all people are the children of God. And actually, they're not. All people are created in the image of God. But children of God are those who have surrendered their lives to Christ. You cannot read with clear eyes and blinders off the New Testament and not see that in order to become a child of God, you have to let yourself go to him. I mean, you read the book of Romans or the letter to the Roman church by Paul himself, and he tells us it's about a surrendering of ourselves. Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower in Luke chapter 9, I think it's 23, that if any of you wants to be my follower, you have to deny yourselves. Take up your cross and follow me. Not me, Brandon, him. Right? And so in order to become a child of God, and again we read in Romans, we are grafted in. Who is grafted in to that, to that root? Believers in Christ are. The Jewish people were the original part. And then we, our believers in Christ, are grafted in and we become children, adopted children of God. Amen. That's a part of what we're talking about today. So if the church is the community of faith and we center ourselves around the purposes of God as written through the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament and everything that led up to that, I'm not negating the Old Testament, it is still valid. Guess what? You still shouldn't murder. You still shouldn't commit adultery. You still shouldn't cover, covet your neighbor's donkey. How many of your neighbors have donkeys? Okay, but you know what he's talking about. In that day and age, if it was a Tesla, he said you shouldn't covet your neighbor's Tesla. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. So the Old Testament is still valid for us today. Well, what about the dietary laws? That's for another sermon, but there were some things 
that were sealed and sealed and dealt with in those days. And now we live under a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. The moral laws are still effectual. They stay effectual from the Old through the New Testament. And Jesus actually says about the moral laws, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say if you, com- if you think about a woman with lust in your mind, you've committed adultery. So he, he ramped up the ante, right? Why didn't you just leave it with the Old Testament? I mean, the action is what's sinful. Actually, the sinfulness comes in here. When you, when you meditate on these evil thoughts, guess what they ultimately become? Action. So what do you want to do? You want to nip it in the bud. You want to catch it before it becomes an action because the thoughts themselves are evil that need to be cast out. That's why we have to take every thought captive and release it to Christ. Okay, so let's look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. I realize time is of the essence, and you didn't come to hear me Babylon forever. So, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Let's read through that again. We're going to focus on verse 46 today really quickly. This is what we've been reading all month long. Let's read it again together. All the believers devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day when it was existent, so that was prior to 70 AD. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So here's the key point this morning, because we are going to focus on this idea of what community is and what community is not. But we want to look at it from the front porch perspective of America today. The front porch is no longer the front porch. The front porch is social media or coffee shops or those other places. But social media has taken that front porch perspective place where we all come by and we check in on each other, right? Social media is a tool for, however, it's not a replacement of true community. And uh, before you really get down on me, yes, I have all the social media apps, and I hate them. And the only reason I hate them is not because I'm too old to appreciate them. It's just because they become a dump of disgusting, horrible stuff. It's like watching a train wreck. You can't turn away, and you realize like two hours later, you're still watching the train wreck. It's horrible. But it is a good tool for the church. The church has a Facebook site. We're live broadcasting on Facebook and YouTube right now. Many of you are watching from there. And if not, you can go back and watch it. So it's a great tool, but it is not a replacement of or a substitution for community. Because of our busy lives and our schedules, we've often reduced our fellowship to these types of things. We just have. We've seen the church as irrelevant because we don't see a difference in the church and the rest of the world around us. So why would I want to give you even two hours of my time on a Sunday morning when there's nothing different about the church and the rest of the culture? And I'm not saying we should go out and try to be different, but actually living out our faith is strictly contrasted as a difference from the rest of the world. The problem is we oftentimes are too ashamed to live out our faith. 
for fear of being ridiculed. And it's getting worse and worse in our culture. To be a Christian is not something that's a great thing to wear around as a badge of honor. It's just not, I even remember being a kid that it was less shameful to be a part of the church or a believer in Christ. You were considered a holy roller if you were a Jesus freak in those days. Now, you are a homophobe, a xenophobe, you're judgmental, you're all this other, all you want is our money. And any other label you want to put on it, the church is under attack. So there's a line being drawn within society today, and in order to avoid conflict, too often we as members of the Holy Church of God do what? Well, unless somebody asks me. But I'm not saying you should go out and beat people over the head with Christianity, but living your life on a daily basis for Christ means you certainly do things differently at times. Yes? Okay. Sometimes your language is, or should be, your language is different all the time. <laughs> Me included. I should, everything I do should be a reflection of my relationship with him. But pr the problem in our society is because we are too busy, we kind of segment our faith off into this subset of our lives as a part or an addition onto, instead of it being our all in all. Does this make sense? And so the community of faith is not a community at all. It's just a social club we get together with on an occasional uh, day of the week or maybe even an evening every so often. It's not something that we are a part of that's bigger than us. So what is it? Are we too busy? Are we too ashamed? What is it? Well, Brandon, you got me. I'm here in the seat today or I'm watching at home. Why are you grilling me? I'm not trying to grill you. The real issue is this is the problem. And one of the big problems of the church in, the, in our culture today, it doesn't cost us anything. Well, that's not true. I pay my tithe. It costs me at least 10%. If you go to China today and you want to be a part of the fellowship of faith there, it could cost you your life. It could cost you your family. If you go to Iran, which is where this huge explosion of Christianity is happening right now. Iran. If you go there, guess what? For you to make a decision to make Jesus Lord of your life and to live out your faith means I've calculated the cost. My family will probably cut me off if they don't kill me. And I know the rest of society will be out for blood. So am I going to make this decision or not? See, it's become so easy in the American culture. And it's, it's something we take for granted. And we take it so for granted, as a matter of fact, that it is just an add-on to our lives. Oh, yeah, what church are you? I'm a part of this church. I'm a part of that church. But when's the last time you went? And we're a part of the fellowship there uh, Easter, Christmas, uh, I, they had a special service baby dedication. I showed up for that. You see, again, it's not about going to a place. It's about becoming a part of a fellowship of believers. Jesus even said that, and I mentioned this last week. I think it was John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. She's a woman of, I hate to say it, sounds, I sound really old when I say ill repute. She was a woman of ill repute. She was a woman who had had multiple husbands in her lifetime, and the guy that she was with wasn't even the, her husband. She was, he just had a live-in. Well, that's okay. 
We do that today. Woohoo! What's the big deal, right? It's not a big deal. But it was a big deal back then. And quite frankly, it's still a big deal to God today. But the truth of the matter is, he starts talking to her about place or about worship. Actually, he says, can you give me a drink of water? Well, she's a Samaritan woman. He's a Jew. And there's been bad blood between those two, and not Jesus and her, but between those two groups of people for centuries. And uh, what does she say? Well, you're a Jew. You want me to give you a glass of water? Pfft. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's pretty much how this goes. And then he starts really unfolding who he is with her. You know, if you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, you'd ask him to give you living water. You'd never thirst again. Well, if you could do that, that'd be great. I wouldn't have to come out here to this well all the time. And he starts digging deeper, and she starts revealing nothing. And so he reveals to her something he knows about her, but she doesn't know he knows because he's a complete stranger. And it freaks her out so much that she switches topics, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, you shouldn't know about my personal business. So let's talk about places to worship. You guys say Jerusalem's a place to worship. We say Mount Gerizim here in Samaria, Samaria is a place to worship. And Jesus says it doesn't matter. There's coming a day when it won't matter where. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you can do that in your own home. You can do that on your rooftop. You can do that anywhere. So it's not about a place to come to. It's about a person to belong to. And that makes all the difference in the world. And see, if we think church is any different today than it was back in those days, see, they thought it was a place too. They thought it was about going through motions, and if I give my tithe, and if I sacrifice this animal, then I'm good with sins for a few months, and then I just have to go back and give another animal again. Now, is it really what it's all about? No, it's about a relationship, not a reaction, not about a routine, but a relationship between you and your God through Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's the point. And when I, as a believer in Christ, get together with other believers in Christ, there's something amazing that should happen. There should be a unity, not because I forced it to happen, but because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. When we gather together, there should be a sweet aroma of praise and worship, not just through song, but in our conversation with each other. We think we relegate worship to music and to singing when worship is an act of everyday living together as believers. It's not something we relegate to just a certain time period. Our work can be an act of worship. Colossians 3.23, and all you do work as if unto the Lord rather than for men. Can you imagine if our workplaces became an act of worship without even saying a word, our witness would be so powerful to our co-workers and our boss. But I hate my job. They're horrible there. Then show them some light in that dark place. Let that place so shine brightly with your love and your response in worship to God through what you do there that others will look and see something so radically different that they will approach you and say, what is it with you? 
What is it with you? I know you hate this place, but you work as if you love it because I'm worshiping my God. I'm not working for this boss. I'm working for an eternal boss. And quite frankly, his is the one I'm more concerned about. And so in all I do this side of heaven, I'm going to give him glory. Oh, you're one of those people. Well, you can call me what you want, but that's why I'm different. Okay, then that's great, awesome, fantastic. I'm so glad that... I... Amen. <laughs> Sorry, that was funny. <laughs> All right, I haven't even gotten to my first point. Let me do this. We'll knock through this real quick. All right. First point, the church is supposed to be a community of oneness. The church is supposed to be a community of oneness. And let me, let me explain that a little bit further. The church is a people who join together with a common vision and purpose that is centered on the worship of God in Christ Jesus. And their oneness or unity is derived from a closeness that is fostered through the power of the Holy Spirit in common focus. Now that's a mouthful. And it's in your notes. I put it there for you to meditate on and chew on. And if we have questions, come back and talk to me about it. But that's really the essence of what it means to be a community of oneness. The psalmist writes in Psalm 133 verse 1, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. How much better is a church that's in harmony? Not singing. I'm talking about literally in harmony together. They're unified. When is the last time you saw a unified church in our culture? And I'm not saying that they're not there, but how often do you hear, oh, that church split, or that church is arguing over the carpet, or that church is arguing over the style of music, or that church, when was the last time you saw a church in perfect harmony where everybody was getting along and they loved each other in spite of their differences I would hope it would be North Maine, yes. I would hope you'd say that. This church has been amazing. It's seen its worst days. It's seen some really dark periods. I've been here for over eight years now, and when I came on, people say, oh, you're pastor where? <laughs> yeah, it's a small enough community where North Maine's reputation had preceded itself, in good ways in the past, but in some very dark ways in other corners of our community. But I would like to think in eight years, we've come a long way. I would like to think in eight years, we've become unified around a common purpose, to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to go for Christ, because he is the subject. North Main isn't the subject. Our style of music isn't the subject. Brandon being the pastor here isn't the subject. Never has been, never will be. And let me dispel a little rumor that I've heard going around lately. I'm not leaving the church unless you know something I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I am so mad. Pastor Brandon is leaving the church. I don't know what I've said in the past few weeks that have led some of you to believe that Pastor Brandon's on his way out the door. He's just prepping us for his, his leaving. We just refinanced our house. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere because then we'd be underwater, okay? <laughs> At least for two years. So, um, <laughs> just kidding. Or am I? I'm just kidding. 
All right, I digress. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? If you're not and you're a part of this church for very long, you'll become very familiar. He's one of my favorite authors too. I have a lot of favorite authors. He's dead. But he was an amazing, amazing intellect in the Christian faith. He died in Germany in the 1940s under Nazi Germany. He was put to death because he was a part of an underground resistance toward the Nazi regime. When all other churches had, in order to stay alive in Germany, they had to, to, to tout this Nazi Germany ideal, he wouldn't do it. And several other pastors wouldn't either. And so they went underground. They had underground seminaries where they're training up pastors and leaders in Nazi Germany as a resistance against. Why would they train up pastors and leaders as a resistance? Because it was about faith in God that was most important, not faith in a political party. Ladies and gentlemen, unless we think there's anything new under the sun, we need to wake up and realize that there is nothing new. The enemy may take on different forms within different generations, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? So who is your allegiance to? And who is our church's allegiance to? Not a political party, but God through Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that ticks some people off. Because then in the same breath, I'm supposed to say, but also make sure you vote. I shouldn't tell you how to vote. That's between you and God. And you need to be a student of Scripture to know what God's Constitution looks like in order to vote in the way that would glorify Him most and not somebody else or yourself. It's not about your pet projects or your different ideals. It's always about him and his ideals and what he wants. Nothing has changed with God. But we think we got to freshen God up a little bit to make him more attractive to everybody. <laughs> we got to dress him in hipster clothes and with the, you know, the. I mean, what do we have to do to make God look good to the public? You have to love him. That's what you do. Love God and each other. That's what it boils down to. There are hindrances to oneness, though. And let me explain just a few of those real quick. Selfishness. What is selfishness? If we were to find that, so I, uh, you hear me often say I teach 7th and 8th grade Bible at Penn Christian Academy. So we come to these words that seem, that seem to be pretty self-evident. But when I ask the question, what is selfishness? It's interesting some of the answers that come back from 7th and 8th graders. So if I were to ask you, what is selfishness? Not that I have figured it all out, but what would be a common definition of selfishness? I'm hearing a few rumbles out there, but not a clear. Here's the thing. Selfishness is all about self, right? In Christianity, as a believer in Christ, who is it all about? Christ. If any of you, remember I said this earlier, Jesus' own words, if any of you wants to be my follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
It's a sacrificial thing we do. We give up who we are for who he desires for us to be. That's why when we have these conversations on sexuality, and I've had many within the past few years, on sexuality, on addiction, on anything like that, the question I always ask is, what did God create you for? God created you to surrender all of your desires to him so that you could become what he desires for you. Not the other way around. The problem is when we decide that it's about us and what we desire and God wants to give us the desires of our heart. But then we take that passage of scripture out of context. Yes, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. But that's, pre, that is, uh, that's this idea of my first giving myself and surrendering myself to God. What happens if I fully deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him? What happened to my desires? They change. They become desires for him. And my desires to please him and worship him. The desires of my heart change when I surrender myself to him. And so then, now think of it in that regard. Jesus says, "You will. I'll give you the desires of your heart. That's the difference. The problem is when we misread and misinterpret Scripture and take it out of context to promote our selfish ideals and desires, that's when we go off the rails. That's where the church has gone off the rails in our culture in many ways. It's when we say, it's, all, it's okay, come on. It's, it's all, God, God loves you just the way you are. But we also don't say God loves you not only the way you are, but he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to help you become what he created you to be, not what you think you need to be. And those are hard things to wrestle with. I'm not saying that I've got it figured out. But as a church, there are many in our community and in our culture that don't have a clue about how to deal with the struggles of their own desires. Having been told by the church traditionally that they're wrong and sinful, What is our place in that? Our place is to be a people who opens our arms and says, come on. But understand, when you're becoming a part of the community of faith, we want to walk with you through this. Yes, we still believe these are sinful things. But we don't believe in condemnation. That's not for us. There is a judge, a holy judge who is more perfect, and that's between you and him. The truth of the matter is, however, that as believers in Christ, we are to lead you to the one who can help you, who can set you free, and who can walk with you through whatever it is you struggle with. The church has become teetotalers in some regard in our culture, though. Instead of... Instead of you know, walking this middle road of understanding, we become legalistic in some sense, or we become all grace. It's grace and truth. You remember me talking about that? Jesus was a person who was full of grace and truth, John chapter 1. He was full of both, not just full of one or the other. And as I mentioned, if you're just full of truth, then you become legalistic. Truth without grace is legalism, condemnation, and judgment. Grace without truth is anything goes, whatever you want to do, that's fine. It's not my business. But as a community of faith, when we gather together, our focus is on Christ and on becoming more like Christ. So we should challenge one another, exhort one another to good works. We should be encouraging one another 
to better things rather than to stay where you are and do whatever you want to do. But we also shouldn't be, you're going to hell. I mean, there's, hear me out. There's a time and a place in healthy accountability where you do say some of the tough love truths that if you continue on this pattern, it will destroy you. Do you hear what I'm saying? But there is a requirement oftentimes of relationship to bridge the gap as a believer in Christ with another brother or sister or even somebody who's even on the edge to say, come on, I'll walk this with you. We, we as a church aren't to just fill the pews or chairs with more warm bodies. It's about getting people to the cross so that they could take up their cross and follow him. Okay, I, I really, uh, selfishness, pride, unforgiveness, resentment, hatred, greed, gossip, anger, fill in the blanks. There's many other things that are hindrances to unity and oneness within the body of Christ. And you notice about all of those that I just mentioned, they are not fruits of the Spirit. They are kind of the antithesis of fruit. They are the disease that kills the fruit of the Spirit and the tree on which it grows. And you are the tree that should produce the fruit of the Spirit if you are a believer in Christ. And what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Those are the things that foster unity within the body of Christ. Hatred, greed, gossip, anger, slander, malice, rage, all of those things foster destruction of the unity of the body of Christ. John, how many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of John Bevere? He's written several books. One of the books is called The Bait of Satan. I read it several years ago, and I didn't read it prior to that because I hated the title. Ask me some other time. I just was in a stage of life and study. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to read that. Sounds kind of kooky. But I read it eventually, and I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I read this sooner? And he talks about the bait of Satan being this, uh, this offense, offense, not like, hey, I'm going on offense and uh, I'm winning the game. It's about I'm offended by something, okay? And he says that is a tool of the enemy to destroy you internally. Listen to what he says. There's this, uh, this, this book of the bait of Satan, Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. In it, he writes, God never created us to live separately and independently from each other. The body of Christ was never meant to, for us to come together and then go about the rest of our week where we don't even touch base with each other. He likes it when his children care for and nurture one another. He is frustrated when we sulk and feel sorry for ourselves, making everyone else responsible for our happiness. You've heard me say it time and time again. Well, the pastor didn't do this for me. The pastor didn't. There are a lot of people that get offended by either what I say, what I don't say, what I do, what I don't do. But maybe you guys have that too. You have people in your lives that get offended so easily by what you do or don't do, say or don't say, or maybe you're one of those people. But the enemy wants us to feel sorry for ourselves, making everybody else responsible for our happiness. He wants us to be active members of the family. God does. God wants us to be active members of the family, the church. He wants us to get our life from him. An isolated person seeks only his own desire, not God's. 
He receives no count. This is what I talked about earlier. What, when somebody falls from grace or something bad happens in their life, what's one of the first things they do? They leave the church. But that's what the enemy's tool is. He's to get, he wants to get you offended, ashamed, embarrassed, so that he can isolate you and do a work on you. So what the person does when they isolate themselves, they receive no counsel and they set themselves up for deception. He goes on to write, I'm not talking about seasons in which God calls individuals apart to equip them and refresh them, you know, calling them on a retreat away from the crowds. He said, I'm describing those who have imprisoned themselves. They wander from church to church, relationship to relationship, and isolate themselves in their own world. They think that all who do not agree with them are wrong and are against them. They protect themselves in their isolation and feel safe in the controlled environment they've set up for themselves. They no longer have to confront their own character flaws because as soon as that happens, they leave and go somewhere else where they can start over. They no longer have to confront their own character flaws. Rather than facing the difficulties, they try to escape the test. The character development that comes only as they work through conflicts with others is lost as a cycle of offense begins again. It's everybody else's fault. I'm alone in this world. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Do you hear these kind of things from time to time? Do you see these kind of things from time to time? That's when the enemy has you in the grasp of offense. And he has you in his clutches. And disunity and the hindrance of unity within your life with the body of Christ or those that could walk with you through a season of darkness. It's not there. Now let's look at social media, and I'll close with this. Social media can be a tool for or a hindrance true to true fellowship within the church. I mentioned social media has become the front porch of our day and age. The problem is our front porch is a place of gossip as it was back in the day. I know there was gossip that happened on the front porch when there were literal front porches, but it's become a place of gossip, slander, especially during the political season, it's painful. Character assassination, reputation, slander, all of this stuff. Michael Kruger in his article entitled Five Ways Facebook May Be Harming Your Christian Life writes, MIT professor Sherry Turkle has recently written a book entitled Alone Together. Alone together, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. Have you ever been to a restaurant and you see a whole family sitting together and they're all on their phones? And they may even be talking to each other on their phones. Alone together. She observes, on a social networking site such as Facebook, we think we will be presenting ourselves. But our profile ends up as somebody else. Often the fantasy of who we want to be. In other words, people might feel more connected, but they can really be more distant, at least from who they really are. Do you look for the best picture to put on your profile? Or do you just get the one where you wake up in the morning? No makeup, guys, if you're, well, no, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Are you putting your real self out there or your masked self? 
She goes on to write, in contrast, true Christian fellowship requires that we engage with people as we really are so that we can honestly face our sin and grow together in Christ. Kruger goes on to write, one of the attractive features of the Facebook style of communication is that it requires very little of us. It is a low commitment and low accountability type of interaction. We control and entirely control the duration, intensity, and level of contact. Any, at any moment, we can simply stop. Now, this goes for Snapchat. This goes for Instagram. It goes for any other social media, TikTok. They're just little snippets. And when we want to stop, we can stop at any time. Sounds like an addiction, doesn't it? At any moment, we can simply stop. But the Christian life and real Christian relationship don't work like this. We do have obligations to one another. We have covenant obligations as believers in Christ to one another. Put differently, Christianity has a corporate aspect to it that stands directly against the trend of individualistic and self-determined relational patterns of our modern technological age. And though it is a good tool, it is not a substitute for unity within the body of Christ. Being a part of the community of faith is a great privilege, but it's also an awesome responsibility. Jesus established the church as an expression of the kingdom of God this side of heaven. And when we isolate ourselves, we are not showing the world what God's church looks like. We are showing it what the world already knows is the reality in the world in which we live. John V.W. Smith, one of our Church of God authors back in the day, goes further to explain that Jesus Christ founded only one church. It is composed of all persons who have experienced redemption in Christ. Its faith is based on the whole word of God. It is ruled by the Holy Spirit. These basic theological concepts are also lyricized and congregations witness to these truths as they sing, I'm redeemed and I'm walking in the light. Back to the blessed old Bible was one we used to sing when I was growing up in the church. And also, how sweet the bond of perfectness. They saw one church of God. And they knew it was not theirs to construct or to organize. A united church was not something to be fashioned by any human process. Real unity comes only as a gift from God and is an expression of his love. As our worship team comes forward today, I don't know what your idea or ideals have been of what you think the church should be for you. But it's not about, I feel like John Kennedy. Ask not what your church can do for you, but you, you can do for your church. Sorry, it was a horrible <laughs> Northeastern accent. <laughs> Sorry. Kruger concludes, technology does not necessarily create sin patterns, but it exacerbates the sin patterns that are already present within our hearts and the hearts of our congregations. In response, we need to do something that we needed to do anyway, give our people a robust and vibrant picture of what the church is and their place in it. In other words, we need to give them a full-orbed biblical ecclesiology. And simply put, that means a picture of what the biblical church looks like. Social media is a tool for, but not a replacement of true community. But let me say it this way too. Sunday morning, 
is a tool for, but not a replacement of true community. <laughs> oh, yeah, I go, and we fellowship, and we linger longer afterward. Well, that's a part of it, good. What do you do with the other six days of the week? <laughs> what do we do? I ju I'm just way too busy. My kids are in sports, and this is going on. I get it. I have four kids at home, too. I get it. But without the fellowship of believers in my life, in my family's life, we would flounder. My family and Sierra Lee's family all live out of state. You are our family. You are the ones we bond with. You are the ones we love. And it's not about the Linharts, but how many of you feel the same way? And what does family do? They're there for each other. It's not about the pastor being there for everybody. I mean, it'd be like, you know, um, one person being solely responsible for the unity of everybody else. <laughs> That's impossible, except for God. He is the unifying factor, not Pastor Brandon, not anybody else sitting in here. But if we are not unified under his precepts and purposes, you might as well just call it quits and we can hang in the, you know, throw in the towel and go home. If you are a part of the body of Christ as a believer in Christ, not only are you a child of God, but you're a part of the community of faith and a community of oneness. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, you established your church. Not as a place, not as an idea, but as a people rooted in Christ, unified under his purposes, living, thriving, and growing in ways that defy any other human experience. But the church in your culture in America today is struggling, God. And we at North Main have at times struggled when we've lost sight of what the true purpose of your church was. It's not about buildings or money. It's not about more people in the building. It's truly about you and us gathering to worship you in spirit and in truth. Forgive us where we've fallen short of being light and salt to the world about what your church and what having a relationship with you is really about. Forgive us where we've fallen short of truly showing others by the lives we live that there is another way. And Father, in this place, help us to be reconciled one to another as you have reconciled us to Christ through Jesus, or reconciled us to you through Jesus Christ. If there's anybody in here with a broken relationship, I pray they would cross the aisles and reconcile today. And if that person's not here in this place, that that unity of fellowship would flow out of this place and into the streets of Butler in the outlying areas where people have come from, that your church would go on mission 
to be reconcilers in this world. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love and your mercies. Thank you that you've given us time after time, chance after chance. And it's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.